0: Hello, listeners. This is Emily Ann from Democrats for Education Reform, and you're listening to Ed Chats from Deefer's media team. From its inception, our nation's public education system has been rooted in inequity, spanning lines of race, gender, gender identity, class, sexual orientation, native language, zip code, and disability, and efforts to change the status quo education thought leaders and political minds are revolutionizing the education space. Every month, we sit down with a few of these leaders and discuss what's being done right now to advance a high-quality, equitable education system for every student. In today's episode, we sat down with Dr. Darlene Offer, Vice President and Director of RAND Education and Labor, and who holds the Distinguished Chair in Education Policy at the RAND Corporation, to discuss the work Rand has been conducting post-pandemic alongside key takeaways from their research.
1: So again, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. Um, We are very excited to talk through just Rand's education agenda, some of the work you guys have done with teacher prep, and then your personal journey uh, through the education system. So that's kind of where I want to start just by diving into your personal journey with the ed system. So can you talk to us about your K-12 experience?
2: You know, I went to all public schools uh, in Florida, uh, Daytona Beach, actually, um, through from K through 12. Um, I am a first-generation college-goer, so I then, you know, went to a very small school in, in Florida called Stetson University and did teacher preparation, which is not unusual for first-gen students to do things like teachers or nurses or accountants. Um, I then taught for 3 years I was a special education teacher and got really frustrated by what policies were doing to kids in schools um you know kind of asking questions like why are we doing this and somebody would say well it's the policy or it's the it's the law and so trying to figure out like how do we make these decisions and why do we make the decisions that we do led me to go get my master's and PhD in public policy. And so after that, spent a lot of time in different universities. And about 12 years ago, Rand came calling um, and I made the switch from universities to Rand um, so that hopefully my work could have a bigger impact than it was having as a faculty member in in universities.
1: So was there a specific moment or experience in your life that led you to wanna be a special ed teacher specifically?
2: yeah you know I don't I don't know. I, I can't pinpoint anything specific other than to say that I had really good teachers. Growing up, I you know, can remember my kindergarten teacher, my first grade teacher, and uh, my American history teacher in high school, there were a number of teachers along the way that really um, made a difference um, and guided my path. Um, I often say that sometimes, especially when you're like a first-gen student or you come from a low-income background, that being in the right place at the right time, well, I had teachers in the right place at the right time um, who really steered me and made sure that I got to where I needed to go. And so I think that had a huge influence on me, just the role that they had had um, in making a difference for me personally.
1: So when you talk about the distinction between education advocacy and ed policy, what led you to pursue the policy route versus an advocacy lane?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question because um, when you do graduate work in public policy, uh, there's a branch at some point where you decide you're going to go the advocacy route or you're going to go the policy route. Um, I think because I'm kind of nerdy and I really like facts and numbers and answering complex questions that I was more drawn to the analytic side of public policy than the advocacy side anyway. Um and now like once you make that path, um there are people who stray. So I know of researchers who started out being very analytic and being very data driven and then sort of over time kind of get more and more into advocacy uh with their work. But for me it's been a real um just a mission, I guess, to, to be objective, to be data-driven. Um, and I think being at RAND has just reinforced that. Um, we have a an initiative at RAND called Truth Decay because we're really concerned about the erosion of facts in public life. Um, and that's what we do. I mean, we produce facts, we produce data. And so the idea that we can't agree on a fact anymore um, is almost existential. Um, so, uh, the longer I spend at RAND and the more work I do at RAND, it just reinforces the importance of that role, that there's somebody out there who will just put out the data and doesn't have a dog in the hunt, as we say in the South.
1: Yeah, it's, and that's so true. I mean, it feels like so many facts get put out that are biased, no, and it gets hard. I mean, when people argue about truth, when you have something concrete, backed by numbers, backed by science, and you're still arguing the validity right. of that, it gets difficult to put out more truth. Yeah. Have you found it to be more difficult um, in the you know post-2016 climate to put out these reports and these analyses um, and hope that the people that you're trying to reach are actually in, um, ingesting it in the way that they should be?
2: Um, for sure. I think things have become harder, um, as people sort of dispute facts first, you know, going to your first point that there is cherry picking. So, you know, there are advocacy groups where they put out things that look very data driven, but they're being very selective about what they report and don't report. Um, whereas if we put something out, we're going to put out both sides, or we're going to put out stuff that is negative and positive. Um, but there are certain topics that we cover and that we do research on that have become highly politicized. So an example would be civics education, which definitely post-2016 uh, has become a contested area. What does civics mean? What should be taught in terms of civics? Um, I mean, there was just a bill passed in Texas recently that says that you cannot do um action-based civics. So you think about like some teachers would assign things to students where they had to write their legislature or they had to go uh, to a city council meeting. Well, that's been outlawed in Texas. And so that's an example of like, you know, a contested area around civics that is not really research-based, but has become political. Do
1: the culture wars kind of affect what research you guys do and what sort of areas of study that you choose to focus on?
2: Um, It doesn't affect what research we do, other than the fact that we're a soft money organization, which means that we get all of our funding from foundations or from grants from the NSF or the NIH or um, the Institute for Education Sciences. And so sometimes we're limited based on what people are willing to fund a really good example of that difficulty is for many many years nobody was doing gun policy research in the U.S because there was no funding for it it was such a hot potato nobody would fund it about five years ago we had a um, a foundation who became very interested in it and they were willing to step up in this really contested space and so they funded at Rand um, gun policy in America um, which really looks at That, But so some of what we do is limited based on what people are willing to fund. But in terms of what we're willing to take on, absolutely not. That's incredible.
1: And what is going on right now in our current education climate that pulls your focus personally?
2: Yeah, so we are very concerned about um, civics uh, and what's happening in that contested space. The other thing that makes us very concerned is teacher and student well-being. Um, During the pandemic, I should back up a little bit and say, um, we have a set of longitudinal panels for educators. So we have one for teachers, one for school leaders, and one for school district leaders. And these panels are groups of educators who are willing to let us survey them multiple times a year. Because we have that in place at the beginning of the pandemic, we were able to sort of follow the what was happening to those educators over time. So even during the pandemic, they were answering our questions. And now post-pandemic, we've continued. And they're the same people. So it's longitudinal in, in that sense. And what we have seen is the The increase in anxiety, depression amongst educators um, has been pretty tremendous um, to the point where we're seeing large numbers of teachers and school leaders say they really wish they weren't in the profession anymore. And that has a knock-on effect on students. So we know there's lots of research that says, you know, if you've got a bunch of depressed, anxious teachers, you're going to get depressed, anxious students.
1: Absolutely. It bleeds in, you know, intentionally or not um, to their daily lives, because if your teachers aren't well, they're not going to be able to effectively help their students. Social emotional learning doesn't come across as effectively.
2: Yeah. And, it, you know, so it gets compounded. So we know that students were also negatively affected by the pandemic. We, you know, we've had enough data points to show us that, you know, they're not coping socially and emotionally very well either. And then you sort of layer that on top with, you know, they're in classrooms with teachers who are also not handling it very well. It just just compounds the the impact.
1: Yeah. And I I don't think that our focus is ever on the teachers as much as it is the students. But
2: there's very I I mean, I've been really surprised how little research, at least going into the pandemic, um, there was on teacher well-being. Very, very little on you know, both the conditions of well-being and on anything on how do you improve teacher well-being.
1: Absolutely. And the flip side of that coin is that we focus so heavily on teacher recruitment, but not so much retention in their field.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge issue. So one of the things that our surveys have shown is, you know, working conditions are, are really not very good for teachers. And part of the problem is over time, we just ask them to do more and more and more. So we've never sort of taken anything off their plate. So, you know, they used to just teach, just teach. And then we had them uh, do lots of accountability kinds of activities. And then we had them do social and emotional activities. And then we had them, so it's this, this sort of layering of more and more and more responsibility to the point where it's an unsustainable job.
1: Yeah, and that compounds the teacher or the educator mental health concerns as well. If schools don't have guidance counselors, they right. don't have um, people in place grief counselors. Right. Like you become that, you take on the role of the parent, the therapist,
2: the guidance counselor. Yeah. Everything. Community mm-hmm. relations, no school nurses. I mean, the thing about the pandemic is we realized how few school nurses there were uh, to handle things like testing and all of the stuff mm-hmm. that needed to happen to get kids back in school. So, yeah, teachers are now serving so many roles that it be, you know adds to their stress. It makes it an untenable position. Um, and it means that the core thing that we want them to do, which is help students achieve, is a very small part of their job right now.
1: Absolutely. And it's hard, I think, to narrow that focus down into helping students achieve, like to your point, when there's so much other, so many other issues that are swirling around between parents every morning when they get in and check their email to you know, district leaders and, um, you know, any of the school boards who are trying to restrict what can be taught in the classrooms? Are they worried about if they say something, it's going to get reported to somebody? And right. it's a lot of stress, I imagine, on educators right now.
2: Yeah, we are seeing a lot of heightened concern around, uh, you know, the politicization of education. Uh We've got teachers and more so even school principals reporting you know that parents are threatening them over things that are being taught in the schools that they're unhappy with so it's a really it's a really tough job and that's adding to you know the well-being and mental health issues that we're seeing amongst educators for sure
1: yeah and i you know want to touch on that too because another component somewhere that we don't focus enough and prepare teachers enough was in teacher prep programs. Right. And I know that, you know, in 2020, RAND released the Learn Together survey, kind of evaluating teacher prep programs and the impact that teacher recruitment and staff shortages have on educator preparation. Yep. So can you share with our listeners some of your findings from RAND on teacher preparation and if there were any standout takeaways from the Learn Together survey that really resonated with your own educator experience?
2: Yeah. So first, let me say that, like, like with the role of teaching, we are, we have asked teacher preparation to do more and more over time as well. And we need to sort of think about that uh, um, a lot because, you know, what I would say is that there are lots of aspects of the teacher role that they're not prepared for. So, how to deal with parents in a constructive way is a thing that most teacher prep programs don't do a very good job um doing uh how to deal with conflict um a perennial of course is behavior student behavior issues and teachers feeling unprepared for that so there's those sorts of things which we have to ask you know should teachers is that the role we want teachers to play um or does that belong somewhere else? Because the other what because what's happening in teacher prep is they're also not getting the kinds of instruction they need for the actual um, teaching. So, I mean, a good example of this is the sort of science of teaching. science, the science of teaching is very clear. We have a ton of evidence about what works in terms of teaching reading. Very clear science on teaching reading and what works and what doesn't work. But when we ask uh, teachers if they were taught the science of reading in their preparation programs, only about a third say that they are. So the question is, like, are we asking so much of teacher prep that they too can't focus on everything and have sort of lost the plot, if you will? Or why aren't they focused on, you know, where the evidence says best teaching practice should be right now?
1: Yeah, and we've. Seen some pretty incredible bills get passed in just like a state like Connecticut, um with the help of Amy Dowell. And, you know, it it's interesting because do you think that an alternative program would be more beneficial for teachers that include the science of reading the science of teaching that we're not teaching now to educators?
2: Well, I mean, we have seen some success with alternatives to traditional teacher prep for sure. i mean, the the evidence, which we've done a lot of the studies on Teach for America, you know, it, it's hit and miss. Although I will say that I think they lean, they're a little more successful on the teacher science driven or data driven, research driven teacher instructional practices. Other alternatives we've looked at sort of district led alternatives also, you know, are kind of hit and miss depending on the quality. Um, but I do think there is a role for teacher prep, wherever it happens, whether it's in traditional prep or alternative for there to be for us to sort of double down and really focus on best practice, evidence based practice, et cetera.
1: And we've touched on this a little bit, but you mentioned the video study that allowed you to stay with educators prior to the pandemic and during, have you, are there any behavioral traits that you notice that maybe we aren't preparing educators well enough for, or we aren't teaching educators that would really be helpful to students?
2: So two things about that study. So the study was um, a video study of teachers in eight different countries. Um, The U.S. didn't participate. Uh, We did it for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. Um, We had both really high-achieving countries like Japan, Germany, um, and Shanghai, China, and some lower-achieving countries. And one of the things that I think the thing that stood out most are two things. High achieving teachers teach more content than low achieving teachers, and they teach it with more depth. So interesting. Yes, which is an interesting thing because sometimes in the US, you know, we think about you do uh, breadth at the expense of depth. But Mm -hmm. when you look at teaching in, say, Japan or Shanghai or Germany, um, their teachers teach both more topics. So we were looking at mathematics, uh, particularly quadratic equations, the teaching of quadratic equations. They teach more topics related to quadratic equations for more time at a higher sort of cognitive demand level than teachers in lower achieving countries interesting.
1: So you think that that content drill down is kind of where we're missing the mark right now?
2: I think, yeah, I think two things about in the US. One, I question whether or not we're actually covering content, you know, so do we actually have the breadth? I mean, that was a big, um, it was a big argument for why we needed the, uh, you know, a whole standard sort of revolution. We needed to make sure teachers were teaching what they needed to teach. I'm still not sure we're there in terms of coverage on essential topics. And then I'm also not sure that we are helping teachers teach with depth and cognitive demand. And the reason I say that particular issue is that we've also done work looking at how teachers um, modify curricula. Mm-hmm. So they have a curricula that's given to them by their district. Uh, they think it's either sort of doesn't really match where their students are culturally or context wise or um, in terms of where they are achievement wise. And so they start to um, change the curricula to try to meet better meet their students needs, which is a absolutely, you know, fantastic uh, goal. But in doing so, they often lower cognitive demand, meaning they make it easier Um even and you know and maybe they would argue well we have some low achieving students so we have to make it easier well actually in in higher achieving countries they do differentiated instruction but the depth of the questioning is still there regardless of the sort of level
1: interesting do you think that we're seeing that get exacerbated in this post pandemic where the learning gaps have significantly increased
2: I think that we we are definitely um, at a point where we could be making that worse because I think all teachers and all schools feel a real um, pressure to try to um, make up for what happened. And as a result, I think two things might happen. I don't know this for sure, but could, which is one, they cover less topics, which they shouldn't do, or they don't cover the right topics, even if they do have to cut some. And then then they cover them with less depth uh, or demand because they think their students are so far behind when actually what we need with students far behind is actually to really push them hard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So kind of a broader question, if you were to modify the education system right now and just reframe how the teacher-student structure gets set up,
2: what would you do? Wow. Great question. Um, and it's something I wish more people would have been thinking about coming out of the pandemic, but, Mm -hmm. um, I would have, I would think differently about staffing in schools first. So the idea, particularly at the elementary school that we have one teacher with a group, same group of 25, 30, 35 kids Mm -hmm. teaching every single topic, um, I think is the wrong way to think about it because, Teachers, they have some things they're good at and they have some things that they're less good at. And so I think we need to think about a staffing plan in elementary school specifically that capitalize on what people are good at. So if there is a teacher who just absolutely can teach phonics to like every kid, they should be teaching phonics to every kid um, instead of the 25 kids in their classroom that they have now. So I think we're missing out on maximizing teachers and what they can do um, with our current sort of staffing model. So whether that means we go to some kind of team teaching model or some kind of rotating teaching model, I think we need to try those things out, Mm -hmm. but that's definitely, um, I, I think that should definitely be on the table and at the upper levels, kind of the same thing in the sense that, you know, we've got places in the country who have a really hard time, Uh, finding, say, physics teachers. They're just not there. Um, So in those cases, you often draft in somebody who really doesn't Mm -hmm. know anything about physics and have them teach physics. And so so I question like, well, you know, we've had almost two years of teaching by video. Why are we not having like an expert physics teacher teach, particularly in rural schools, by video? Now, video didn't go well for all teachers, but some teachers really adapted to it. So if we could find like the physics teacher who's really expert at teaching and also can teach in this environment, why not have them teach 150 kids across the country? And we'd have to think about how to support that, but so that they get the con- the depth of content that we want them to have. Yeah. So
1: almost like a masterclass structure right? where you have your your content
2: experts who are teaching widespread, right? Widespread. And then maybe in in the actual schools, you have people who support kids, you know, help them do their homework or help them, uh, you know, do other kinds of assignments, but that the content is being delivered by the master teacher.
1: Yeah, and we've seen research come out so far about team teachers and right. the positive effect that that has on students. So, do you think that there's ever a pathway that we could get to restructuring the current education system?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, we you know like we've seen some schools take some risks and they've paid off. Um, and the way they've done it is think differently about lots of things. Think differently about staffing models, think differently about um, uh, funding models is really important. So where we see these different things happen, they're blending funding sources in a way they wouldn't have been before. So I think you need some creativity. I think the current funding models and the current structures, like the way we, you know, one teacher per classroom kind of notion Mm -hmm. uh, makes it difficult, but it's not impossible.
1: It's, It's an interesting thought to see. If we could ever get there and to kind of think exploratory in the future, if we could ever get less rigid with our systems to take those kinds of risks that could pay off well for students.
2: I think that there's lots of promise if we really started thinking about different models of structure and staff.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we are currently rethinking that, especially post pandemic when it comes to summer school. Um so I wanted to ask, you know, you've studied summer school policies a few years ago pre-pandemic um with a greater emphasis on summer programming to accelerate student learning in the post-pandemic era um along with significant federal funding like what do you see that gives you hope
2: for summer learning initiatives? Um first of all that they can work. <clears throat> um if they're if they're really structured um they can definitely work. The problem is they're not always that structured. Um, so the research that we were doing pre-pandemic, one of the things that we realized, so most summer schools pre-pandemic were to catch kids up, like they were at risk of failing and it was hit and miss, but it was hit and miss because either they weren't spending enough time on instruction. Uh, we learned things like you really need to have the teacher, the summer teacher be the teacher who would be receiving them. So if you had a third grade student going into fourth grade, the fourth grade teacher really needs to teach third graders during the summer. Got it. As an example. Um, so we learned a lot about time on instruction. We learned a lot about like who needs to be there teaching. And if if summer programs do those kinds of things, then they do help catch students up. And it compounds. So like if you go to summer school one year in a really good summer school, you may not catch up. You're not going to catch up the entire gap, but you're going to catch up a little bit. And then if you do it the next year, you catch up a little bit more and a little bit more. And so the more often we use this, the better we will be at being able to catch students up over time.
1: And then, you know, staying onto the point about catching students up, I'm curious, did you and your team of researchers change or accelerate any of the research you were doing, um, post the NAEP scores coming out last year?
2: (laughs) Uh, no, uh, we didn't didn't really change, um, what we were doing other than to emphasize with our, so we work with a lot of school districts and a lot of States. Um, they, uh, are gracious enough to let us in to study them, uh, which we really appreciate. And, one of the things we try to do because they're gracious enough to let us in to study them is, to, you know, tell them about best, best practice everywhere that we can. And so, um, you know, we got a lot of questions following the NAEP about it. And so we started doing, a, I think, hopefully a better job of talking about, like, what does a good summer school program look like? What does what good tutoring look like? Does tutoring work? And in what kinds of, you know, uh, arrangements? so that they understand what the evidence says so it's more about us trying to like transmit the evidence better and faster than it was changing necessarily what we're studying or how we're studying it
1: and what was the outcomes of some of those conversations are you seeing people be amenable towards these evolving best practices
2: yeah absolutely i mean you know school di- like teachers school district leaders state uh superintendents of schools they have really hard jobs and they are inundated with all the things that are required of them and so helping them cut through the messages and the million different ways they can be pulled um i think is a role that research and researchers need to play more often So can we help them focus? So I know they have, you know, a hundred different demands on their time every day, but like, what are the things that are really matter and make a difference? And we are seeing some of that. I mean, some continue to drown and some are really focused on a couple of things that they think will really matter and that research tells them will really matter.
1: And- You know, on that topic of the research, we've touched on a few of these points earlier, but I'm curious, aside from, you know, funding and trying to really wade through the tide of misinformation, what have been some of the biggest
2: challenges facing you right now with research? Ah, ah, well, I mean, the pandemic changed, uh, at least initially, and I think it's probably going to change, continue to change it for a long time. So When the pandemic uh, started and schools started closing down in March of 2020, we had 30 different studies collecting data in schools, meaning they were out there observing classrooms, interviewing teachers, doing focus groups, and that just stopped, came to a complete stop when schools closed down. And so we really had to rethink um, how we do that? How do we find out what's going in, on in schools without having to be in schools? Um, and we we learned a lot and we found some new methods that I think are going to stick um, for sure. The other problem which we continue to have is that the historically we have used student achievement tests, so state level achievement tests, as outcomes for studies. So does X program change student achievement on these tests? Those tests, sometimes they're given now. Sometimes they aren't. Lots of places they aren't. They were scrapped sort of during the pandemic. They haven't all come back. And so when you're trying to see whether or not something is effective, what do you use for the outcome if you can't use student achievement? What are proxies? That's a
1: hard question. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What are the proxies for student achievement? And so we've had to do a lot of thinking about what those are and then how, you know, can we collect them and what do they look like? Um, So it's the pandemic changed what I do and what my um, colleagues do a lot. And I think some of that is going to stick around for the better, to be honest. I mean, Prior to the pandemic, everybody complained about using a single measure like student achievement to see, you know, to say something works or doesn't work. Mm -hmm. The pandemic pushed us to find other measures. So now, you know, we also are looking at things like uh, working conditions or student well-being or other. So trying to come up with multiple ways of seeing whether or not something works rather than just using a single measure.
1: Yeah, I think that that can be helpful too to kind of getting a holistic view of students. You know, the student achievement tests don't account for students that weren't able to be in class due to them having to go to work or family conditions or mental health. And so do any of these new methods that you're looking at to track student achievement kind of broaden how we look at students and the challenges that they're facing?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, So one of the um, sort of... I wouldn't call it a movement, but one of the things that we're seeing more often is this notion, um, and it's at the high school level, really, portrait of a student. So each student uh, in districts where they're using this, like each student has a like portfolio. So they sort of end high school with this portfolio that tells not only about like their achievement on tests, but it tells things like, um their interests uh where other things that they are succeeding at and it has all these different measures that gives you a portrait of their abilities and their skills and their interests and all of that kind of thing and so i think those sorts of things hold a lot of promise um i think the next sort of st- one getting more more places to adopt that i think would be good but then secondly like helping colleges and employers understand what they're seeing in these portraits so that they can judge, you know, is this person a good fit?
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Giving them more information than just a standardized test score.
2: Yep. Interest, skill, you know, different kinds of skills and abilities that may not be picked up on standard achievement tests.
1: And, you know, kind of ending on that note, what makes you hopeful right now about the research you're seeing or about the changes you're seeing in the education system? What's making you optimistic about the future?
2: Wow. Um, The things that are making me optimistic is I think, uh, and maybe it took the pandemic to do this, is that people have a better awareness of the inequalities or inequities in our system. So I think people are paying a lot more attention than they were in the past to that. So that makes me hopeful. Um, I think the second thing is that people now also, I think, you know, on the one hand, we have a truth decay problem in this sort of general public. In the educator world, I think people are a lot more concerned with data because they want to know like what works because Mm -hmm. they can't mess around anymore. Like we've got it, you know, we can't lose this generation. And so- Just tell me what works. Like, tell me what the research says is something we hear all the time. And that makes me really hopeful.
1: Fantastic. And um, I just wanted to thank you so much for explaining everything to us and, you know, going through a lot of RAND's education agenda and topics. And uh, it's been a very good
2: conversation. Thank you. It's uh, very enjoyable. Thank you.